Well, welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. This is a very uh, somber one, I'm afraid. Not this episode, but certainly this moment in time. I was due to speak with Lynn Shelton the just literally this week, Monday. It was an interview that I was so excited about, talking to her about all her work from Mad Men all the way through to her incredible films like Sword of Trust, her, her most recent release. And I, I knew that it was going to be a good one. I knew it. And I was sat out there in the garden on Sunday thinking about it. You know, you you do with some guests, you, you, you do. You just think this is going to be great. It's so exciting. It's something that you get to look forward to because you know they're not going to let you down. You know it's not going to be a weird awkward sticky conversation and she she passed away and it's completely unimaginable but obviously only because I'm I was due to speak to this person it's it's extraordinary I can't put it into words really you can tell I'm struggling to I I don't know it's just one of those things I I felt um that we really we really got along this correspondence we've been having for about sort of three or four weeks and this the story that i was really looking forward to bringing you guys was that we kind of met through her brother-in-law um in sri lanka we were we when laura me and pearl went out there about a year and a bit ago and we went out for about five six weeks with maternity and we we were in aragon bay in sri lanka is absolutely this beautiful country out there and this guy was sat on the table I was on my own Laura was with Pearl and I thought jeez you know in the spirit of travel I'm going to go over and chat to this guy so I went over and chatted and we got talking about how he looked like Tom Hanks and then how um, we love you know podcasts and I mentioned Mark Maron's podcast and then he said oh my sister-in-law was on on that and I was like no way yeah yeah uh, Lynn Shelton anyway like fast forward like a year I've done a short film, sent it to her. Um, I've written a film. We're editing it now, and I was going to send it to her. I couldn't wait for that. And uh, it's just crazy, totally nuts. And and yeah, Rob, her brother-in-law, is such a sweet guy. And I don't know, emailing him about it and just how devastated, obviously devastated they all are. It's just, it's so brutal. And I... I guess, if anything, I think it's just the most disturbing thing because she was so, she was 54, but she felt so young. Like if you look at all her work, the way she was, uh, the way she carried herself, she seemed so, so young in spirit. I, you know, I didn't even meet her. It's so bizarre that we had that, didn't we, with David Bowie. We had that with so many artists that are dear to us. We need, we don't meet them and yet we see so much of them through their work and it, and it bleeds out into you and you feel so connected with them and it's excruciatingly painful and I'm feeling uh, slightly better today it's been like sort of two three days to sort of process it more but um my god you know you listen to um Mark Maron's podcast at the moment uh it was heartbreaking like genuinely I um 
I've never heard anything quite so heartbreaking in all my life, uh, save for what my mother went through um, in the eye of the storm just after my father died. Uh, I remember some pretty horrific um, moments there, um, this total despair, just seeing someone in, in that situation. It's, 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 it's so hard, it's so, so hard to take. But anyway, we uh, we go on, we go on, and no no Lynn this week, which is desperately awful. And I like I said, couldn't wait to to bring that to you. So I guess what I will say is go and look at her work. It's it's all there to be seen. Google will help you. I would say Sword of Trust is a, a fantastic film, well worth a go. I had to watch it a couple of times. I don't know why. The first time I was like, I was being a petulant little prick. And um, the second time I calmed down, it's a really, it's a, one of those films you watch and you, you watch it, chill the hell out before you do it. You know, I was racing when I watched it and I, I was all over the place. Um, and yeah, you know, you can watch some awesome episodes of Glow that she directed and, um, and obviously Mad Men. But I suggest you just sit down and watch her work. It's fantastic. Lynn Shelton. Uh, rest in peace, and it's desperately sad that you weren't here uh, to join me for this amazing opportunity for me to talk to you. But anyway, this week is, as I said, a book week. <clears throat> book week, a book episode, rather. Talking to a lovely guy, Andrew Wilson, about Patricia Highsmith, the one and only. Now, she was, wow, a, a controversial figure before many different reasons so she was a, a, a bit of a crazy one and uh, but my god could she write she was full on full full on and she was ahead of her time let me tell you when uh, Talented Mr Ripley came out um, people didn't know quite what to do with that it was explicit it was about um, homosexuality and and also it, as we discuss in in this episode as in what happens in Carol the uh, the protagonist doesn't get punished for for being gay, which back then was um, was deemed you know whoa whoa irreverent you know that that single mother that homosexual that lesbian has to be punished so it was um, it was quite a revelationary a revolutionary book a, a writer as well and I think you're gonna love it because Andrew himself has got a really awesome story about his love and fascination with Patricia Highsmith and his his, his actual well, I don't know what you'd say but his he's like a, he's an official biographer so he went on a five-year ride to pull everything together to interview everyone to, to to write the book and it's a it's a really fascinating story how he was given the keys essentially to a vault that contained a lot of very personal information so it's going to be it's going to be a good one. You're going to enjoy it, and I'll tell you what: go and read. If you haven't read *The Talented Mr. Ripley* already, please can I urge you to do so? It is I've I've audiobooked it a couple of times. I've read it a couple of times, physics the physical copy. It's amazing. It it really is. And and if you've watched the film like like I I have on many millions of times, you're the the two are distinctly different yet two masterpieces and they'll make you feel in a completely different world they will take you out of your world and place you into another one and make you question things that you didn't realize you should be questioning 
or you should be questioning. I don't know, too many questions. Fry your brain. So enjoy that. But um, yeah, I guess in the meantime, if you do have any spare time on your hands, check out my website. It's got the short film on there. It's got, um, was it? what else has it got on there? It's got a, a pilot, a comedy pilot that I did with the uh, same director as the short film, Colin Midgley. So you can go somedaysadiamonds.co.uk and you can check that out. That's somedaysadiamonds.co.uk. And that would be great because, you know, we're all creating, we're all trying to do stuff. And it's nice if you can uh, help out here and just watch it. I mean, that's, that's how you help, by watching it. That's all it is. But, um, yeah, and I think next week it's going to be, I haven't decided yet who I'm going to bring you. Like, I've got so many to choose from, so many wonderful people. But I think we might go talk to a blues legend, um, a guy called John Amor. And he was in a band called The Hoax. So it's going to get bluesy, but it's also a lot more than just about the blues. It's about touring in the States. It's about um, recovery f- uh, from alcoholism. It's about waking waking up into a new world, a new dawn. And it it's a very deep, emotional story. Because frankly, I thought one thing of John, and in terms of his image and, and how he has been in my mind for like 20 years, and what he actually has been going through uh, behind you know behind the mask as it were it's an awesome conversation i can't wait to to bring you that so maybe in the meantime check out some of his music john amor that's j-o-n amor spelt a-m-o-r okay so i think that's about it i think that's all we need to say do look after yourself enjoy the chat with with uh, with andrew wilson he's a lovely guy he's so sweet and i tell you what I'll probably say this once or twice again over the next few weeks. But God rest your soul and Shelton, you're a, you're a fucking awesome human being. Take care, guys. Enjoy the podcast. See, the thing is, I'm not actually a Nazi. This is, um, I took this off for charity the other day, the hair. And uh, <laughs> subsequently went in the mirror, like as you would do, um, and realised I look like um, Edward Norton in um, American History X. Yes, well, I think, I think there's lots of people, actually, that suddenly have gone a bit crazy with the clippers. Oh, yeah. Because of... Situation. I've got a few friends. I've got a friend who looks even... He's got a more severe cut than you have, actually. He's really? Every- this is like a grade half point one, uh, I think. I know. He's gone even further, actually. Yeah. And oh, he's a God. he's a lead... He's the head curator of the Bodleian. So you can I, imagine... And he's had to do things like Zoom meetings. So you can imagine... Oh, my God. ...from some of his kind of fusty, tweed-wearing colleagues. Yeah, like the transition is madness. Oh, is that red? You've got the red wine on the go. I have. Uh, Good choice. What have you gone for? Um, I think it's a multiple Chiano. Okay, if that just sounds like a concert. That sounds like a Vivaldi suite of some kind. <laughs> like, um, uh, I'll just nod my head and go, yep, uh-huh. I see. Um, I'm, I'm not drinking during the week. God knows why I'm doing that. Um, so I look at people that are drinking and go, what's that? Oh, yes. Yeah, what's that? Um, just so you know, I am recording, just because I do that in case I forget to press record. Sorry. 
you know, because honestly, that has happened. It happened once and never again, never, ever again. Um, So how's that book collection behind you looking? That's amazing. Just above your head. I haven't got... Oh, that one. Oh, yeah, there are some books. Quite a few, Andrew, yeah. (laughs) Yes. No, I'm not sure whether you could get see that or not. That's just kind of, yeah, a few paperbacks. God, a few. That's that's great. There's some great ones up there. Are there any old school vintage penguins? Yes, there are actually. I'm looking at yours as well. I always kind of first thing you do, no, you can see people's collections. Yeah, I've got some Tom Petty um, biography, uh, Steve Martin stuff, the remain the the remains of a day. Those those are the only ones that spring to mind. Did a book about the Dieppe raid in 1942. Yes. And roll. Such a lad. And also after that kind of um, the Michael Gove thing where people were sort of picking out his picture. Um, yeah. You have to be very careful, I suppose. Yeah, but I don't I don't see what the big deal was. Like they're they're all books that like white guys over fifty get. Like it's a it's a standard. Like you whether you like it or not, you will just like, you know, you hit you fifty, have... you're getting them. Exactly. And I think I had I saw today there was a copy of Mine Camp. A really, really old, nineteenth-century copy. I saw today. Wow! I hadn't even noticed they'd been there on your old... shelf. Yeah, they've been obviously God. there for years. But that must be worth a bit. <laughs> <laughs> very very well, I've got the, I've got the right haircut. So maybe you just mail it to me. You know, let's do an exchange. Yeah. You can, you can um, have my Steve Martin book, and I'll have my Kampf. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Good God. But yeah, no, it's it's been absolutely amazing reading up about you and, and then in turn reading up about um, Patricia, because I know that I've done, uh, I mean, after I fell in love with um, the, what they call it, the Rip, Ripleyads. Oh, the Ripleyads, yeah. Yeah, all the Ripley books. I just, I just fell in love with her. I didn't know, I didn't go into any great depth because I know with me, it's in one ear out the other if I'm just reading it. So I have to have a conversation for things to stuff, for, for stuff to stick in, in the old cranium but um it's for you it must have i mean when when did that love start for i mean i know this is this is a, a conversation based on patricia highsmith but please you know we can talk about other authors was it her in particular um or was it a, a sort of slow like sort of agatha agatha christie journey and then patricia highsmith or um well my first love was agatha christie just because yeah. as many people I started to read her 10 or 11, that kind of age. Um, and so that was my way into crime fiction and probably my way into adult books as well, because I think Christie is one of those authors that many people use as a bridge between children's literature or children's books and more adult books, because she's very easy to read. You know, her sentences are short. She represents the world of adults as being somehow full of secrets and lies, which of course is very appealing to somebody of that age. Yeah. Kind of an outsider as a, as a child, looking at the adult world for signs and symbols. Yeah. Um, so for me, I started, yeah, of, co- of course I started with Christie. And then actually I didn't come to Highsmith until I was in my mid to late twenties. Okay, yeah. So quite a long gap. Um, and the first book I read was The Talented Mr. Ripley. And oh, wow. Get, get in there. Yeah, I was completely hooked. And then I read Strangers on a Train. Um, and then I started to read a little bit more about her, to try to find out a bit more about this writer. 
and looked at some interviews that she did and realized quite early on that she was a very closed personality. So she had done a number of interviews, some with, with some leading journalists, but she never said anything. She was almost deliberately making herself invisible in these interviews. She was a very, very clever eluder of the truth and a, of her, and a hider of her own personality. Yeah. So if you ask her a direct question, she would never really answer it. She could talk about her work a little bit, but there are some very uncomfortable um, moments, like she did an interview on The Late Show when Carol was published, republished in the 90s. And the interviewer, which was Sarah Denant, said, where did the inspiration come from? And obviously, we know, I know, we all know where that inspiration came from now. But at the time, she didn't want to talk about just how close it was to her and how real that sense of, of stalking and obsession, how close that got to, how close to her very heart that was. So she just said to, to Sarah Denant, I don't talk about my personal life at all. And I would never talk about it. It would be like giving out a friend's telephone number live on television, something like that. So she closed wow. down the debate. And it was a very awkward moment on, on television interviewing. Um, yeah. so I knew from that kind of interchange that she was hiding a great deal. Um, and then I went out to look at her archive. So nobody had seen this archive in Switzerland before. It had been sealed after her death. And then the Swiss Literary Archive gradually opened it with, with very kind of little um, attention or, you know, nobody really knew about it. So I was kind of the first outsider to see what was in there. And I could not believe what I found because wow. there were diaries and hundreds and thousands of millions of words just waiting for somebody to come along and read. And, you know, she was given the opportunity to burn all this stuff because as a very private person, she could easily have done that, but she decided to leave it behind. And she wrote some letters to very close friends saying, um, she knew that a biography would be written at some point. Um, and she said, you know, I don't mean to think of myself as important as Winston Churchill. I don't know why she chose him. Um, <laughs> I don't sound as important as Winston Churchill, but I know that a biography of me will be written. And, in the course of that biography, it will come to light that I'm queer or gay, and that has to be talked about. Yeah. Um, so that was the kind of my beginning of the journey for me as a biographer of her. So how come how come you though, Andrew? I mean, I, I, in my mind, um, there's like a, a line of people queuing up to get hold of get hold of that stuff. Or, you know, all those letters and all the the um, diary entries and what have you. Yeah, no, it was interesting because I was a feature writer at the time. So I was writing pieces about, you know, 3,000 word long sort of interviews um, with film directors and writers and so on. But I had this kind of urge to write something long and some sort of book length form. I didn't really know how long the book would be when it turned out. You know, it's kind of close to 220,000 words, the biography. Um, so I started out in a kind of very naive way, thinking, you know, I just want to find out a bit more about this woman. But when I came across the archive, I realised just what was what was there. And also in the archive, I, I discovered some of the letters from the great and the good in terms of biographers who tried and failed to write a biography because okay. they just all they'd done, they'd approached the task at the wrong time. 
they were too they were too close to her death so they rushed ahead too quickly and at that point the literary estate were not even thinking about anybody writing her biography it was too it was too soon and i started that probably about three years after her death my inquiry started and i just hit lucky because it was just the right moment the archive was opening the, the literary state was was thinking about appointing somebody um and i was very i was just very very persistent um and i went i made the i made the effort to go to switzerland um, well that's for you that's like all your christmases rolled into one isn't it it was extraordinary what I found. Um, and it was a very kind of high Smithian task in itself because it was just a very spooky experience. So I was going into this archive in Switzerland every day, wandering the, the streets of Basel, um, living in this, this kind of lovely turreted house. Um, and, you know, reading about this very, very dark material. I mean, one of my, I'll just read you this kind of, um, one of the first things I discovered when I got there, I opened one of Highsmith's little diaries and I read this. Look before and look behind. There's still time to change your mind. Perfidy no time assuages. Cursed be he that moves these pages. <laughs> that's brilliant, isn't it? God, so, you, that's, that's like Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, you know, <laughs> or the Lost Ark or whatever it is. Guys. So I was obviously, you know, given the opportunity to turn around and get the first plane back to London. Um, but I didn't, of course. I mean, obviously, I carried on turning the pages because I wanted to know a lot more. God, this honestly, that must have felt absolutely extraordinary, like, like an absolute treasure trove. And I, I suppose as you're reading, going through it, is it in the back of your mind? Are you thinking, you know, right, she's gone. She can't, she can't be tried. She can't go to jail. Is there going to be a confession? Did she kill anybody? You know, is there any kind of inspiration? Yeah. Actually, she she was a murderer after all. You know, well, I think the nearest thing was. Um, I mean, she she almost said, and people did say to me that if she hadn't have had her writing, this kind of outlet for these psychopathic, dark thoughts, that she could easily have injured or killed somebody. Yeah. Um, nearest thing was, was when she had this kind of very torturous four-year on-off relationship with this older woman called Ellen Hill in the 1950s and they met in in sort of Germany in the 50s and it was so kind of difficult this relationship there was kind of a lot of kind of mental and physical violence between them and they eventually were living together in New York and Highsmith sort of finished the relationship and Ellen said, I'm going to commit suicide. And she drank a couple of martinis and took some Varanol, which as we know is a very strong barbiturate. And Highsmith just left her, walked out of the apartment and thought, okay, you just die. Um, and she just took herself off to Fire Island um, and assumed that her lover had died. And it's all experience that she then channeled into her book, The Blunderer, and the same thing happens with with Walter, his neurotic wife. Obviously, I haven't I haven't I haven't read that one. Oh, it's a great um, yeah, it's a great one. It's her second novel after the after Strangers on the Train. Okay, 
And oh, that sounds it's almost like it's almost like a murder, really. If you think about the logistics of that, you know, letting somebody commit suicide. And this woman did not die, but she could easily have done. Um, wow. She went back in a couple of days' time, and you know, she had to call the police and got, get her uh, submitted to, uh, admitted to Bellevue Hospital Psychiatric Hospital. So okay, God. it was full of toxic. It's a very kind of toxic relationship. Well, yeah, I mean, if we if we wind it back a bit to sort of give that some context, because there's a reason, obviously, that um, Patricia Highsmith was was why she, you know why she was, and um, and it's it's actually really it's desperately sad, isn't it? Like her her childhood and, and what have you. Well, it didn't start well. Um, her mother tried to abort her by drinking turpentine, turpentine. Um, so that was not a big good beginning and later in life Pat would say to her, her mother you know tell me this tell me again why you did this and Pat's mum would say gee it's so funny Pat that you adore the smell of turpentine um so it's a very odd start and Highsmith so said, said that you know she was born under a sickly star she knew she was um a strange personality quite early on I think. Um, so there were a number of things that happened to her as a child. She her, her, she never really knew her real biological father. And her mom remarried Stanley Highsmith, who Highsmith grew to hate to such an extent that very early on she had kind of murderous fantasies of killing him as a child. Then she seems like as though she was probably sexually abused when she was five or six. Um, and in addition to that, she had a period of separation from her mother. Um, her mom kept dumping her with her grandmother in Texas where she was born and her mom would go and live in New York. So all these kind of different fissures and factions and dysfunctionality, um, which made it very, very difficult for the young Highsmith. Um, in addition to that, she knew quite early on that she was um, lesbian and you know growing up in Fort Worth in the 20s and 30s obviously that was not the best thing to do and her mum said to her you know why don't you straighten up and fly you know why don't you straight up and fly straight and all these kind of terrible things that she'd say to her young daughter yeah so it's the, yeah, standard abuse basically but having said that Highsmith very knew quite early on that also this dysfunctionality this kind of attraction to the dark side fed her gothic imagination and without these very strong dark experiences we probably wouldn't have this strong dark fiction that she produced well yeah sorry just because I, I was rereading the talent of mr ripley this past few days and um just falling in love with it again i i can't I'm, i cannot tell you how many times i've read that book it's almost on a level with stoner the john williams book and i i think um the 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 bit early on quite early on where um ripley talks about his auntie and killing her fantasizing when he's on the boat going over to france uh <laughs> you know to italy and stabbing yeah. her with a brooch in the neck and stuff i'm like yeah fucking hell you know that's that's intense right there you know exactly and highsmith every night she would have these kind of dreams and fantasies about killing particularly her, her stepfather um, then she'd write in her, her notebooks about these kind of, you know, gothic ideas, um, which were all about, from the very beginning, they were all kind of dark stories about usually two people who loved and hated each other at the same time. 
So there was some kind of attraction between them, but there was a hatred and an antagonism. And that's that yeah. kind of pull effect you get often in most Highsmith novels have that. Often it's a male-male antagonism attraction, um, but sometimes it's male-female. Um, but that, that's the one thing, you know, I think there's, there's a line in Strange on a Train where she talks about how there's the God and the devil wrapped around every single atom. And that's kind of a, almost a metaphor for, for, for a lot of things that go on in Highsmith's fiction and in her life. It's amazing writing, isn't it? I mean, you think of the time that that that, that was written. You know, I know that Capote was, a, was was he a mentor to her or am I getting that mixed up? What happened was they knew each other socially. And I think what happened was there was some kind of, I think he um, sublet her flat, which meant that she could go away for a certain amount of time. So they knew each other. She took a very kind of, almost like a mature decision not to spend too much time with him because she realized he was very much a social animal. Um, and she realized that she had to work very early on in her career to finish Strangers on a Train. So she, I think she stepped away from him. Um, yeah. She had this... Sorry, sorry, carry on, sorry, sorry. She had this, even though she was, she was quite dissolute in lots of, lots of ways in her early life without being judgmental, um, but she had a very strong work ethic as well. Mm. Yeah, because the, I like, I don't know whether, I, I think I quite like the relationship in my mind that those two would have had on a, and because um, I've, I've read a few of his short stories. There's the, the, the really, the, obviously the really, really famous one where the, is it the daughter kills a mother or, or something, or the daughter's a really nasty piece of work. And I, I can't quite remember what it's called, but it's so, you know, when I was reading Highsmith, I was very much like, oh, this is very, because I, I put Capote like an idiot that I am or was or continue to be um, in the camp of breakfast at Tiffany's and that's it. And they're all like that. So when I first read some Capote, I was like absolutely blown away. Similarly for Highsmith, I was like, oh, turn to Mr. Ripley, it's all like that. And then went on to read Two Faces of January um, and the... Um, the almost very Dostoevsky, Nabokov kind of um, obsession one where the, the guy... Um, this Sweet Sickness. Yeah, yeah, the Bittersweet bitter Sickness, right? Well, This Sweet Sickness. This Sweet Sickness, yeah. And again, I just I love I loved that book. Oh, my yeah. God. But um, I've gone off piece here, but that's okay. You know, <laughs> we're crazy. We're crazy kids. We can do that. Um, but, yeah, so, we, you know, we were, we were talking a little bit about um, Patricia's childhood i mean when 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 was it that um you kind of like see is there any, anything in the in the um archives that you you found that she would talk about the that seed being watered and then the st the slow sort of growth into a writer would become and would she ever admit to like being a bit of a i don't know a, not necessarily a an awful writer in the beginning but you know really confessing to having to learn the art of writing well, I think she was very, very, she had that kind of economy of style, which I think really helps all writers. And she had that very, very early on. So if you look at some of her really early short stories, she has, she had that. So her style really didn't change at all. Um, some of her early work, particularly her early unpublished novels, they complete, they don't work because the narrative doesn't work basically. So that's the thing that she had to really work on. Obviously, 
with a short story, you have like, I don't know, a couple of thousand words and it's a short narrative, isn't it? It's kind of a glimpse or a scene yeah, or a character development or an insight or an image. The thing that she really had to learn was how to, basically how to structure a longer narrative, how to structure a novel. And that, there are a couple of novels that have never been published that I read in the archive that don't work because they're just, um, they're floppy and they're kind of, the narrative is not tense, there's no storyline, there's no arc. There's no way this book is going anywhere, anywhere. So she had to kind of get a few of those books out of her system before she learned the techniques of writing a longer, longer work. And obviously, you, re- you hang on, you re- you read some unpublished Highsmith. I know, I know. It must you're saying it's not that it wasn't, it didn't hold together and what have you. But still, that must have been one hell of a thrill, no? Oh yes, I mean, every single day in the archive was a, another day of revelation. I never knew what I would find because I just had a printed list of a kind of not even a basic finding aid, just like a typed sheet of, of what was in the box. Um, obviously, we're talking more than 20 years ago now. Um, so obviously, this was pre-digitalization. This was pre-computers in, in lots of ways. You know, I literally had to go there with my laptop and type in these hundreds of thousands of words every single day. I mean that's how it, that's how it worked. Um, wow, my and, eyes are wide open, absolutely <laughs> popping out of my head here. Oh my god! I yeah. So those kind of I would call up the unpublished manuscripts and I would read them, and I would have to work obviously very quite quickly. I mean, your kind of abilities as a speed reader do increase when you have um, a certain amount of time in an archive. It took me about a year to get through all the material. Yeah, um, there was so much. But there was there were certain gems, obviously, the kind of the diaries and the notebooks, which kind of really do show the links between her life and her work. I mean, for a long time, biography, I mean, I did an English degree when biography was rubbished. Nobody believed that any kind of life experience could have any kind of influence on a piece of writing. I mean, it sounds almost kind of stupid when you sort of spell it out like that but you know I kind of did a degree in the late 80s where it was all about you know structuralism post-structuralism and the text all the answers being found within the text and nothing coming from outside could be seen to be invading that text Um, but I've always been interested in those kind of links between you know life and work and when I just saw the kind of you know the fact that Highsmith had all these kind of experiences and she wrote them down and sometimes you see you know sentences from her diaries lifted straight from the diary and they make an appearance in the novel um wow. yeah once you get that experience you know when highsmith was working in bloomingdale's in 1948 which was the inspiration for the price of salt or carol i mean if she'd never had that experience that novel would never have been written i mean that that's such a that's a good that's a good point you know because circling back a bit to pre-fame and what have you um i mean what can you can you paint a picture of what it was like for a, a slightly more mature um uh patricia sort of going through i don't know where where she was in brooklyn or queens or what have you and 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 what, what she's doing and, and what her day-to-day was or what her relationships were and what was inspiring her at the time in which which so sort of like pre maybe sort of maybe just pre uh, 
strangers on a, strangers on a train or any of uh, just before the, the the you know the paper was really lit um so at that moment she was obviously working her way um you know she was kind of doing everything she could to make it as a writer and to earn a living you know she was living in, in manhattan she didn't come from a family with any kind of money or privilege she had to um, earn every dollar so she was very very conscious of the fact that she had a burning ambition she wanted to make it as a writer she'd worked um for comic book strips so she you know she did things like the equivalent of superman she wrote the the boxes um for like six months to a year and she got paid by you know the sheets probably um and she needed every single every single dollar i mean obviously she had this very kind of traumatic experience where she had um, had this long relationship with um a, a fellow writer novelist called mark brundell and he had published a couple of novels by this point um and this was just before strangers on on the train was published so it's really really early days as her for her as a novelist and um she got a grant to go to yaddo which is the writer's colony in upstate new york so she'd had a few stories published one in harper's bazaar and she'd written a couple of you know like a good chunk of of strangers on the train um, but she she needed to finish it so she had a couple of months at yaddo which is by all accounts by the, at that point just a place where lots of writers went and drank huge amounts and i don't know how they actually got any writing done by the amount of drinking that went and also the bed hopping that went on as well obviously those two things were kind of combined um so she she kind of was doing everything possible to try to get herself um into a state to be married she said um, she wanted to marry this man called Mark Brandel, but she found sex with him so repulsive um, because obviously she she was gay. But the pressure she's gay. Of- what was she trying to do there? You know, poor well, thing. Like, wow. You know, everybody expected her to be heterosexual, and all the kind of the cultural signs coming into her. Um, you know, at the time, all the kind of popular books. If you opened a book which had a lesbian character. By the end of the book, that either the lesbian would be converted to heterosexuality, committed suicide, or ended up in a mental asylum. So, you know, that's what she was up against. Um, but all these kind of experiences fed into both Strangers on a Train and also a few years later, The Price of Salt or, or Carol. Because obviously, as we, we know, what happened was to try to get herself into a state to be married, she started a therapy group. Um, and this group of, of, of women met every single week with a therapist um, where they all tried to become heterosexual women. And she had one-to-one therapy, um, but she needed to pay for this therapy. So the only reason she could she ended up working at Bloomingdale's was because of her therapy. So she become so she could then become straight. So that day, what that one day in 1948, she was in Bloomingdale's at the doll counter, when in walked this glamorous older woman, blonde woman, who Kate asked, Blanchett. yes, exactly, who asked for a doll for her daughter. She left her delivery details. Highsmith became immediately obsessed with her. 
followed this woman out to her house in New Jersey um, and said in her diary, um, murder is a bit like making love. Um, and, you know, she wanted to, she wanted to, she fantasized about placing her hands around this woman's neck and killing her, but also possessing her and loving her at the same time. So all these kind of themes came, came together and that was the gestation for The Price of Salt for Carol. Wow, that's that's so intense, isn't it? Like you've got this kind of duopoly. I don't know this this thing going on there where she's trying to be conventional. She's trying to like if I do A, B, and C, then you know the rest will follow or or what have you, and and therefore trying to sacrifice her inner self. You know, trying to deny her her inner self. I don't know what's going through her head at the time, but that happens to an awful lot of people. You see that within church groups within you know, trying to pray, pray the gay away and all that horrendous behaviour. Um, is And I, I know that's debasing it slightly. Um, but I think it's just extraordinary. But it, like you said earlier, if you didn't have that level of suffering or that, I suppose, denial of herself, then you wouldn't have got these incredible novels. Yes, that's that's true. And also... When she was writing like the Tons of Mr. Ripley, you know, she was writing in her her notebook about how she was going to force the reader to identify with the psychopath. And, you know, she, which was all about her forcing the reader to look at the rational mind and the in- unconscious and how those two things play themselves out. So, she, you know, she was a child of Freudianism. Um, so, she, you know, she grew up reading Freud and and had that kind of Freudian therapy herself. But she was fascinated to see and also to to make happen in her own writing where she, you know, she wanted to to embody that William Blake quote, which is something like, each man is in his specter's power. So it's all- Sorry, could you repeat that? Yeah, so each man is in his specter's power. So it's all about the shadow side and that's one of the reasons I called my book Beautiful Shadow, because it's about how the unconscious and the irrational take over. And that's what all her books are about, basically. It's the kind of the pushing forwards of the irrational and the unconscious into everyday life. Um, and that's what she very, very cleverly does with the Ripley novels, um, where she forces the reader to identify with the transgressive and the abject. I- Sorry, that's just, it's just fascinating to me. And I think also people want escapism, don't they? And they also want to live vicariously. I get that completely. But also the, the what I really was thinking about today, because I, I, I work outside as a gardener and my, my I can't, I, I, don't, I haven't got any time to read books when I get home. I've got my daughter and then I'm exhausted. So re, if I get to read a page and still be awake at the end of it, I think God is like, you know, giving me a gift or something. But when I was listening to it today, I was very, I was very much thinking, right, how is she doing this? How is she setting this character up for me to <clears throat> eventually side with him and, and root for him? Um, I think there's a couple of things going on, but one of them today that sparked my interest was the escapism in terms of the actual character escaping his surroundings, his shit existence, his horrible little life that he's kind of put himself into conning people essentially pretending to be a tax man and um and, and conning people and then then he's got this you know what we all want right we all want that millionaire to come along give us a ticket to a faraway land and we just we go off it's just what it's, 
it's just what happens it's like somewhere it's like somewhere beyond the rainbow you know it's the wizard of oz but with murder <laughs> well it's fascinating i mean it's fascinating how she does that and it, it happens very gradually and i think she does it because her style is so simple and economic and she wrote about her, how she did it herself in her notebooks and basically she said she cloaked the fantasy and the gothic elements with this cloak of very very similitude so she could have as many gothic fantastical murderous criminal elements as possible quite far-fetched things actually but if she wrote about them in a way that was almost kind of boring you know in a very kind of um very steady not flashy style at all so the reader kind of goes through reading about very very banal things so you know something like he walked across the kitchen to pour himself a glass of water be one typical Highsmithian sentence. But then the next, we could move forward towards him thinking about doing something violent. And it's a very kind of gradual, minute by minute, baby step by baby step approach towards something that's so horrific. But as a reader, you hardly notice it. And that's her genius. Oh, God, it's wonderful, isn't it? You, you know, you're just explaining that so well because I'm just thinking about all the all the times I've read it and just tried to slow it down and just see her style. And I know that she's written a book about how to, how to write a, a novel. Um, and I've got it on my bed, bedside table. Can't read it cause I fall asleep, but it's there. I've read a few, I've read quite a bit of it and it is fascinating to just see this side of her, but um, it's just that skill is, is untouchable. And I mean, in terms of influence, who, who was, like I suppose when Strange on the Train came out, what was the reception of that, and how did that influence other people around her and other writers? Well, I think because obviously publishers saw that very much as a crime novel, and that's one of the things that she was always kind of fighting against. You know, she would be placed within the crime section, and of course, she differentiated between crime novels and suspense novels. So she thought she was working within the kind of tradition of Dostoevsky. And she said he was like a, a suspense novelist. And of course, when you look at Crime and Punishment, it is the ultimate suspense novel. But her literary influences were existentialist influences. So they were, you know, they were Kafka, they were Kierkegaard, they were, um, you know, Tolstoy, to some extent, there was Sartre. Um, all, the good, you know, all the good stuff. Yes, they're kind of the Russian bleak existentialists and certain French modern writers. But what she did was kind of import those ideas into kind of modern fiction, but again, disguise them in a way to make the kind of the bigger thematic points readable and digestible for a mass public. Um, so when Strangers was, was first published, obviously Hitchcock, thought it would be a brilliant film and of course it was made into a brilliant film but he changed the ending to make it less distressing and less dark for the for the kind of a Hollywood audience yeah so I I haven't I haven't read that book I'm a third of the way through it I haven't finished it and 
I want to say don't spoil it, but I also know that thousands of people that are listening to this already, they've already read I it, they've spoil, already known. No, no spoilers, so, but I'll just say that the the film is not as dark as, as the ending of, of the book. It all um, ends very happily, yeah. <laughs> so it's not quite, yeah, not quite as dark. Um, so Highsmith got, I think she got $6,000 for that, for the rights for that, um, which enabled her to buy, you know, bought a bit of time for her to write her second book. I mean, I think in terms of her influence, I don't think she probably influenced people until much, much later in, in her life, and probably not until after her death in lots and lots of ways, because um, for a long time in America, she, you know, at the end of her life in America, she didn't even have an American publisher. She was much more seen as a kind of a European writer because she was very much in exile from America. She, you know, by the end of her life, she'd lived in Paris, she'd lived in France, and she lived in Switzerland at the end of her life. So it, she had a kind of a cult following in America, and it wasn't really until the talented Mr. Ripley, the Mingella film came out, that people started to talk about Patricia Highsmith again. Yeah, I mean, that's, that to me is extraordinary. Like you saying that now, I, I can't believe that. I can't, but then again, obviously, that's me being perhaps deliberately naive or obtuse. I just think that... The reality is, in my mind at least, that an awful lot of authors are in their time completely, not ignored necessarily, but um, put to one side slightly. I don't know. I don't know whether that's true of Patricia Highsmith, but it seems like that's what you're kind of, that's a picture you're painting almost. Yes, and I think also from reading the kind of the notes from her American publisher over the years, it seems like her subject matter and her themes were too dark for mainstream audience. I mean, it's only you know, like only now, you know, years and years after her death, she died in, you know, the mid nineties. So it's only now that I think people are kind of taking on board those kind of themes that we can sort of look and examine amorality. We can look and, you know, things now it's kind of to a penny that, that, films and TV and books is told from the perspective of a serial killer. But obviously, you know, she was doing that in 1955 with, yeah. uh, with Tom Ripley. And obviously now we've had, you know, we've had Dexter, we've had, you know, Hannibal, we've had these other kind of more monstrous creations, um, where it's filtered down into popular culture, if you like, but those wouldn't have happened without Highsmith. Yeah, no, I, I can. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. What, but in in terms of her sexuality and her, um, I don't know, not feminism, but that sort of thing. How in terms of did she? Is there a legacy there? Is it? I know because I know you said she was a very difficult woman, very strange person, in terms of um, coming forward about her personality, her private life, which is cool. I I, I respect that. I'm not going to give anyone grief for that, but. Um, I, I think there, there was a hostility there. But in terms of, um, do you think there's a legacy for her, you know, her, um, for other lesbian women confronting that that world of, you know, taking that first step into their sexuality and realising their sexuality? Well, I think for lots of um, gay women, I think The Price of Salt, Carol, is a key work, obviously, because it's the first book first popular book that has two women at the end who seem to stay together. You know, 
the original ending for that book, Ty Smith wrote it originally, where it wasn't a happy ending at all, but her agent suggested, why don't you try a happy ending? And oh, really? In, okay. In her diary, she said, you know, it's so lovely that my characters have, have, a, have a, this kind of happy ending, but why can't I have the same kind of thing? You know, she was she was oh. so tortured in her own personal life that she could never really have that sense of a relationship that lasted for any significant amount of time. I mean, obviously, that's fine for lots of people, but for her, she did want something that was a kind of a longer-term romantic partnership. But unfortunately, she tended to choose partners that were unavailable. She often fell in love with straight or married women um, or women that were unavailable to her in some kind of way. Um, yeah, I get that complexity. I, I really do. I feel that. I feel like it's almost like with the, the trouble, her troubled background. I mean, her, her childhood. Her, I mean, there's so many scars there. But a part of me, when I when I was reading up on uh, on her, I did think, like, you know, in modernistic terms, there probably be the analysts now would say that she probably suffered from PTSD, almost almost certainly. You know. Yes, I think there's lots of kind of labels you could put on her. Um, one of her friends who was an educational psychologist told me that she thought she probably was on the kind of uh, autistic spectrum. She might have Asperger's, something like that. Um, and obviously she had lots of problems, but she didn't have labels when she was growing up. She didn't have syndromes. You know, when she was 10, she started to read a book called um, The Human Mind by Carl Menninger, which was kind of a, a, a book by a psychiatrist of case studies and quite extreme case studies. So mm. imagine you know, she was 10 years old reading this, but she was always, God. you know, her, her contemporaries would be reading Little Women. She was reading a Patrick textbook, but that just kind of shows, you know, the kind of skewed perspective that she had on life, but also her, her you know, this kind of genius level of this attraction to, you know, the, the, the less rational mind, if you like, um, and also just picking up that point where you were talking about um, her sexuality. She's a great kind of, she's almost of, of, of equal interest to gay men as well as lesbian women, just because of the kind of the male-male homoerotic relationships that she has throughout her books. Um, and I think, again, one of the interviewees, one of her close friends, said to me that he could imagine that she was a gay man trapped in a woman's body. So now we have all these kind of different ideas of gender fluidity, um, which didn't really exist at the time when she was growing up in Texas in the 1920s, 1930s. But, you know, she was exploring complexities in her writing um, and they come out, you know, these kind of interesting, um, you know, dynamics, sexual dynamics are all there to be read in her novels. I mean, it's a, it's a might, an absolute mine, gold mine of stuff that she tapped into, and and I know that obviously certain people would have seen it as a you know a, a, a perverse um, you know back in the day in the nineteen fifties would have seen it incredibly perverse to write about that sort of thing, but it's it, nonetheless it's still she was bang ahead of her time beyond people just or clearly weren't ready for it you know um but it was, it was a truth it was a golden truth it was like a, a spiritual truth that she was, was she talking about you know it's not like she was just inventing i don't know some new style of writing she what well, obviously she was but and in terms of like i don't know she wasn't being like 
she wasn't inventing the blues or something. She was like invent, you know, she was talking about something that's real, that's within all of us, but it's being suppressed and, and the prejudice that's, you know, compounded it all. And it's just fascinating to me that she was able to just be so dedicated to that, you know, just go, look, I'm, I'm just going to do this. I could write a standard murder, whatever, whatever, whatever. But she's 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 unpacking the most intense multi-layered character in Thomas Ripley that I have ever read in my life, you know, and and, and done it, what, how many books are there? The, the four, five I, books? Five yeah. books? I mean, it's extraordinary to me. But I, did, I do want to, because I'm conscious of the time, but God, I'm loving this conversation. This is absolutely, I mean, talk about strangers on a train. You know, I, I, it is kind of like sometimes it is like in a conversation, it's like getting on it because we haven't met before. And it is like sometimes I feel like I get on a train with a guest and I, I bump into them, I don't know, I knock their coffee over and then we just start a conversation. And um, and yeah, and it's great. I just, you know, I f- feel like, you know, I could go to Scotland with this conversation just over the yeah. overnight train, you know, Agatha Christie well, style. We could, but um, We could swap mergers on the train journey. Yeah, yeah. Well, well there you go. You, you beat me to it, okay? Thank you. But... In terms of your own writing, you you obviously you said Agatha, you, you pointed out Agatha, Agatha Christie earlier, um, and who's ooh, fantastic, um, unbelievable. Oh yikes! Um, I, I watched the ABC murders on, over Christmas uh, on BBC One or whatever it was, and oh I just loved it. I thought it was a really good adaptation. I thought um, John Malkovich was astonishing. But your own, you've you've written, haven't you? You've written your own novels based was it on Agatha Christie going missing am I well, yeah there's there's a series of novels so there yeah. are four the fourth one comes out later this year <gasps> exciting uh, it's I, I did one a year so the first one A Talent for Murder is based on Agatha Christie's real life disappearance in 1926 okay brilliant so it takes the facts of the case as far as we know, from police reports and witness statements. And what I then did was um, into the kind of the black hole of what we didn't know. I injected a crime story to explain this mysterious real life disappearance, because we know that she went missing and she was discovered in Harrogate um, in 1926. And, you know, this, this was probably the biggest manhunt in early 20th century. So there were like 15,000 police and volunteers looking for her. There were bloodhounds, there were aeroplanes. Her story was flashed across all the newspapers. It was on the front page of the New York Times. There were pictures of her in disguise. Arthur Conan Doyle came in, got a glove, took it to a medium, had this kind of extraordinary kind of sense of, you know, it was a a great sense of sensationalism. God, that's mad. So I kind of took that story as a basis um, for my crime novel. Um, which is kind of told from her point of view as well. So she's at a low point in in her own personal life. Um, Her husband wants to leave her and her mother's died. Her writing's not going very well. But in my book, she is then blackmailed by a doctor who wants her to commit a murder on his behalf. So there's a bit of a High Smithian kind of link there. Great. And obviously you've got the word talented in there, right? Yes. Was it talented? Yeah. So, you know, that's a good nod. That sounds brilliant. That's a, do you know what? When you started describing that to me, a 39 Steps um, came to me as well. I don't know. I don't know, I quite know why. Um, 
I, I absolutely love that genre. I, I I read the Thirty Nine Steps and was blown away by it, frankly. And and it hasn't dated. I mean, obviously, it, it's of a it's of an era, but it's still for me, it's just a great story, and it therefore has not dated. And I I sat down and read and wrote about thirty thousand words. It was all shit. Like it was all complete crap. But it was <laughs> like it was it was it was just that. I was sat down. I was in Seven Spider and wrote thirty thousand words of a book just because of the thirty nine steps. But I presume with Agatha Christie, that's is was that the that must have been for you. What what done it for you? I suppose reading her and then wanting to write yourself. I suppose so. And when I was twelve, my English teacher gave an exercise to everybody in the class and said, "Go, you've got the Easter holidays to write a novel." Um, I took it quite seriously because I'm a bit of a geek. Um, so I came back with a forty six page story. Um, which was a kind of beginning, middle and end. And it was called A German Mystery. And it was very much an Agatha Christie pastiche, um, which I've still got, actually. And it's kind of no really... No way, that's brilliant. So it's really interesting how your kind of... I always think it's fascinating for people and writers, but how your kind of childhood, teenage passions or readily interests often influence you later in life. But as a 12-year-old boy, I had no idea that I'd end up writing four novels in which... Agatha Christie was my sleuth. <laughs> that's so romantic. Honestly, Andrew, that's so adorable because I have the exact same story. I haven't written a book, but when I was 12, I had my English teacher set us a thing and I, I did um, a Bernard Cromwell uh, rip-off okay. of, of like Sharp's Waterloo. But I was humiliated in front of the classroom. He, he read it out and just took the piss out of me. And okay. Yeah, just, I couldn't write again. I didn't write until like, again, until I was like 26, 27 which was yeah yeah bad teacher it was an arsehole thing to do but you know some you know whatever but that that to me is fascinating and i I, for you anyway and um and obviously you've done loads of journalism as well so you've you know you've been writing for some for some years on a multitude of subjects well i suppose yeah i suppose i was a journalist then i was a biographer so after highsmith i did harold robbins um, yeah. I, the young Sylvia Plath, a book about the survivors of the Titanic, um, and then the first biography of Alexander McQueen, the fashion so designer. So you got some steam going with that. I mean, Sylvia Plath, that is, good God, I've been to her home in um, West, in, in on the Downs. Uh, what the hell, where's it called in that? Um, the South Downs, is it? Oh God, where was it called? The little village. Oh, never mind. It was, it's, it's in West Sussex or something. It's absolutely beautiful. But um, what was um, what fascinates you about Sylvia Plath? I mean, not other than the bleeding obvious, but what what got under your what lit the fire there? Again, it was a teenage reading because you know I started reading her like many people at eighteen. And I thought there's nothing else to write about Sylvia Plath because, you know, there've been all these biographies, there have been so much written about her. But I just started to think what kind of life did she have before she met Ted Hughes? So it confines itself to her years before she met him, just to yeah. try to claim her as a woman, as a writer, because I think she was often defined very much by him. So I took him completely out of the equation and the book ends really with their marriage. So it's yeah. kind of she's kind of trying to sort of see her on her own terms. Yeah. And so who's who's like 
giving the go ahead for these things because this is for as, as any budding authors out there you know it's um it's one thing isn't it to have these um fantasies not fancies but these uh, projects these ideas to be able to turn them into living breathing books is a completely different thing where did you learn your craft and how do you think you've become a success at that well i think it's all about persistence so like with the highsmith books that was my first book i'd never written anything of that length before there were people that said to me this is not going to happen you're not going to do this and obviously you have the internal voice saying those kind of same things as well um but i always say give it a try and if you don't ask the question, you're not going to get an answer. Um, and just, you know, see, see what happens. And also just to be really kind of very, very persistent, because otherwise there are lots of people out there that will try to stop you from doing things for various motives. And I just think it's best not to listen to them. <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, I'm very, if I've got an idea, I'm just really, really very stubborn when it comes to publishing or going forward with that idea. Yeah. And that probably yeah, so, comes probably comes from journalism more than anything, actually, because, you know, as a journalist, you're often sent on a story and you have to come back with something. Um, and actually, one of the first things I, I did a journalism course at City University, and one of the exercises, we were given an, a printout from the A to, A to Z. Remember those, those little map books of London? Oh, yeah. Really, young people wouldn't know what they, what they are, but they were kind of like a basic kind of, um, a street map to London and we were kind of given um, a sort of like a mile radius from the college and they said go out and find a story come back when you've you know you've got three hours come back and write you've got three hours to find a story come back and write it and that's the kind of exercise you're given as a journalist which is actually very very helpful because it forces you to think on your feet you have to find something out there stories are all around us it's just talking to people, listening to people. Everybody's got a brilliant story to tell. That antenna, uh, the antenna is always going, right? Yes, and you find obviously you find this with with your work. Oh God, yeah, 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 definitely. I just no, it's, it it sounds like you've had um, a heck of a journey because I know every writer has their own doubts and their own hurd, you know hurdles that they come across, but it, it it's so cool that you. I I still can't get my head around, and I'll probably think about this for a few days. Like how you just you got all that archive material in 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 Basel, and it it, it must be extraordinary. And this this show sometimes we we, we kind of focus on um, a moment in someone's life, uh, in, in a guest life, and I'm in my mind I'm thinking is that when you kind of almost you know theatrically get the keys to the vaults of all this material of patricia highsmith would you say that was incredible yeah yeah completely because it was an unlocked box obviously it wasn't just one box but you know there were hundreds of boxes but in terms of the symbol it was one box that had to be unlocked and highsmith had set herself had kept that box locked she kept her heart locked she kept her emotions locked and her free space space was the freedom of the diaries and the letters that she wrote and the notebooks that she kept. And she she left them for somebody to come along and, and look at them. And she knew that this book would be written and books will be written in the future, not just mine. Um, 
but she knew that she wanted those kind of links between her life and her work to be studied yeah. about. But it was an amazing kind of moment of revelation or a series of moments of revelation for me. And in addition, it was the opening up of her friends and her lovers because I went all around the world talking to everybody that she knew. So it was a series of interviews, about 150, 200 interviews I did in addition to the archive where people talked to me about things they'd never talked to anybody about before. Wow. God, sorry, I need to close my, my jaws. Is that unbelievable? So how many are we talking like? year two years of getting all there must be at least two years of getting these interviews together compiling them and what yeah. have you yeah so the whole book took about five years from beginning to end five years i'm so naive i just literally my, my incredulity knows no bounds that is unbelievable i can't uh, five years my god i presume you were working on other things at the time as not just the novel it was it was, was other things going on yeah, I was doing other journalism. Um, yeah. But I was working from home, so it meant it was a lot easier to do. Yeah. And I could travel freely. Yeah, so do you think there, I mean, just before we go, but I was, I was wondering, you know, what you were describing there, your own journey with this book, it, it sounds like there's a movie in it. It sounds like there's a, there has been so many films made uh, in, you know, film, so many of her books turned into film. Just wondering, there could be a easily, you know, I can see the film now in my head. I can see, you know, a younger you, Still as handsome and as glamorous, but a younger you going into these vaults in Basel and just, and then the movie, we go back in time to a, a young Patricia and the formative years. That, that, surely a biopic of Patricia Highsmith would be amazing. Yes, it would. With some kind of murder involved. Probably a, a murder of a biographer. There we go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. Or just uh, just someone. Just let's put someone in there. Doubt the, we'll kill the busman. We'll just, or, you know, the, the traffic warden. Yeah, let's kill a, ca a traffic warden. <laughs> I think I'd probably be, have to be punished for my, my curiosity. After reading that curse in her diaries, that yeah. would lead to some kind of sense that somebody was watching me and stalking me. And it would probably turn out to be some figure of Highsmith herself. Right, yeah. Um just yeah so i'm um i've, I've got uh, yeah like i said a stranger on a train stranger on a train on the go what would uh, and i've read um oh i've forgotten it now oh, this week's sickness. Yeah. yeah what other and and two face of january i've read that one okay. so what what um other high smith should i what should be my next high smith or and the, and, the and, and and one for the listener as well um, I definitely recommend Highsmith's second novel, which I talked about earlier, called The Blunderer. Yeah. So that is a really, really interesting novel um, about a man who reads a story of a, a murder in a newspaper and then becomes obsessed with it, and that leads to his downfall. And then okay. also recommend her short story collection called Eleven, which is in the title suggests Eleven of her brilliant stories and of course that has a couple of her snail stories because we haven't talked about her obsession with snails uh, extraordinary extraordinary right so we know that she smuggled them in her handbag to into parties literary parties where she had like a a bag of letters or like a, a head of letters sorry um but then there's also some suggestion that when she moved between france and england she would smuggle them in her bra no way yes smuggle a snail in her bra 
No, not just one snail, but a lot of snails. That's extraordinary behaviour. That is that's very Freudian, no? And then she wrote about these these her snail stories are, are full of grotesque detail of snails mating. And she kept them as pets, we know that. And she was very interested in the fact that they were hermaphrodite creatures. And, you know, they had very kind of, um, you know, interesting mating habits, shall we say. So, she, you know, she was, you know, she was fascinated by that. God, wow. I'm reading, I'm reading this ch uh, children's book to my daughter at the moment called The Snail and the Whale. I will be looking at snails in a different way now. I have been informed. <laughs> anyway, uh, we should probably call it a call it a night. But that was so fantastic, Andrew. Thank you so much for your time. And um, yeah, and, and I, I absolutely loved it. Honestly, um, I can't wait to get stuck into the blunderer. I really can't. It sounds amazing. Yes, I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, and also I'm I'm gonna give I'm gonna give some of your stuff a go as well. I'm I'm really excited for that. And oh, it's um. Was it what um just for the the people out there? Have you got a, a I know I know what your website is, but it it just sounds so much nicer when it's coming from the guest. I think it is andrewwilsonauthor.co.uk. There we go. You don't sound very certain about that, but we'll go with that. <laughs> I haven't checked for a while. <laughs> Let you. All right, Andrew. Well, thank you so much, and uh, we'll do it again sometime. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. She's coming over. Twist on me. Twist on them. Twist on you.